Welcome to the New Life Philly podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. Amen. Well, listen, let's uh, get into the Word of God today. And the topic today, my message is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. We're going to look at Mark chapter 6 in just a few moments. But the cost of discipleship, I want to start out by just talking about a man who actually wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Christian pastor, theologian, and he was eventually martyred by the Third Reich on August 9th, 1945, at the concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, uh, Bonhoeffer was hanged along with many others that the, the Third Reich had gathered up. Interestingly enough, it was only 21 days after his death, after uh, he was martyred, that Adolf Hitler himself committed suicide 21 days later. Bonhoeffer, as a young man, showed great promise as a budding pastor, as a theologian, uh, as a scholar. But he knew that there was something foundationally missing in his spiritual formation. And in 1930, at the age of 24, uh, Bonhoeffer traveled to the United States of America to come to Union Theological Seminary. But more importantly for his theological formation, he ended up in Harlem at Abyssinian Baptist Church where Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was the pastor. And what happened with Bonhoeffer in that time is he was awakened to a different layer of faith, a different way of participating in the life of the body of Christ, a a, a care for the poor, for the marginalized, for the hurting, for the struggling. And when he went back to Germany, he took that with him, including the spirituals of the black church that he took back. And when he had secret seminaries, to stay away from the Nazis, they would be encouraged by the Negro spirituals that he had learned in that Baptist church in Harlem. His life was changed. His faith was invigorated. And he goes back to Germany, and not long after that, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party come into power. Two days after Hitler came into power, Bonhoeffer went on the radio and gave a radio broadcast denouncing the new Reich and the new Fuhrer. In fact, he used a play on words where he he, he talked about Fuhrer versus Verfuhrer. Fuhrer means leader. Verfuhrer is misleader. He said, be careful that your Fuhrer is not Verfuhrer. He did this with the rise of Adolf Hitler to power. He knew about the cost of discipleship. He wrote the book in 1937. He was martyred in 1945. 
It's a famous quote from that book that says this. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He got that phrase from his pastor in Harlem, from Adam Clayton Powell, cheap grace. But as he reflected on it, he recognized and realized that there was something going on in the church that wanted to partake of all the benefits of redemption and grace in Christ, but knew nothing of discipleship and the cost that is contained therein. And he rejected that. The reality is that the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler could not have come to power and done all the things that they did unless the bulk of the German church, the German Christian church, got behind the Third Reich. But there was a remnant. And Bonhoeffer was a part of that, the confessing church that spoke out against the injustice and atrocities of that Reich and of that Fuhrer. But it cost them everything, the cost of discipleship. We love to talk about grace, and we should. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ for us to bask in his grace. Let's stand together this morning and look at Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 14 through 29. You can see the ones that are in bold. We will all read those together. The ones that aren't in bold, I will read myself. When you see the bold, just let's read God's word together. Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came on his birthday. 
Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, He did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. I'm speaking today, as I said earlier, on the cost of discipleship. And the main idea that I want you to get today is this. True discipleship costs you everything. Somebody say everything. Everything. True discipleship costs you everything, but it gives you infinitely more. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. Lead and guide us now as your people that we might live lives that give glory to our king. Be with us in this moment, we pray, and glorify your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Cost of discipleship. want to unpack what's in These verses, I was looking at them this week and doing all my exegetical work and just saying, Lord, where is the sermon here? The man gets his head chopped off. Where's the sermon? But the Lord is faithful as we look to him and and he showed me a few things that I pray will be of help to us as the church. The first question that I want to look at is from these first few verses, 14 through 16. And the question is this, what do true disciples do? What do true disciples do? And uh, the first thing we see here that they do is true disciples shake up earthly powers. Amen. True disciples shake up earthly powers. How many of you know that in the scripture that we just read at the beginning here, Herod is shook. Amen. Tell someone you got to shake it up. You got to shake it up. When, when we are walking in true discipleship to Jesus Christ, we're going to shake up some things around us. Because we have a commitment to love, we have a commitment to truth, we have a commitment to one everlasting and eternal king, and it's going to shake up some things around us. John the Baptist's ministry shook up King Herod. He was a shook man, amen? 
He was shook. Now, uh, the, the, the scripture here talks about Herod over and over again as King Herod. But let me just unpack who this man actually is. His father was King Herod the Great. His father was the one who tried to uh, have Jesus murdered as a young child and, and sent the forces of the army uh, into Bethlehem and had the children killed there. That was King Herod. Herod, this Herod, is actually his son. Herod Antipas is his name. And although the, the scripture uses the title king here and that People would have called him, many people would have called him King Herod. He actually was not a king. He was actually what was called a tetrarch. When his father died, he divided the kingdom into four different parts. And Herod Antipas was given one of those parts. And so he is a wannabe king, really. But he didn't want anything to do with this other king, King Jesus. And so Herod is a shook man. If you look at verse 16 in the text, people have offered these different possibilities of who uh, Jesus might be. But Herod is stuck on this. He said, I know it's John whom I beheaded raised from the dead. He is remembering his past. He is remembering what he did to John. And so he is shook and he is guilty and he is wondering who could this be? It must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That doesn't make any sense to a first century Jew. But when, when, when you're shook like this, when you're living out of guilt, you're probably not going to make a lot of sense. You're probably not going to make a lot of wise decisions. And let me just say this about, about ministry. Sin and guilt will always cloud your judgment. Effective Christian ministry and work is never fueled by guilt or by shame, but it's fueled by a prophetic conviction of God's will and God's purposes. So as we move forward to God's work here at New Life, we cannot be fueled by guilt. We cannot be fueled by shame. We need to be fueled by the word of God, by the spirit of God, and the conviction that God's kingdom has come to set things back in order. Guilt won't do it. Shame won't sustain us. What do true disciples do? They shake up earthly powers. Now I want to look at this story that, that Mark gives us. He does what is called a flashback. We see that in movies. We see that in some of the shows we enjoy where you're in one place and now you have this flashback. That's exactly what Mark is doing in verses 17 through 29. He gives a flashback because Herod is living under this guilt. What is this guilt? This is the most complete account we get in the Gospels of how it is that Herod had John the Baptist uh, beheaded. And so the second question is, what do non-disciples do? Here are some characteristics we're going to lay out of non-disciples. The first one is this. Non-disciples are committed to gratifying their flesh. 
committed to their own comfort, to gratifying their flesh. Now, let me, let me say this before I go on. Every family, if you look deep enough, some of us don't have to look very deep at all, but every family, if you look into it much at all, has some mess in it. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. And some of it is messy mess as we look in our family. Sometimes we don't have to look back very far. Sometimes we just look in the next room or in the mirror, but there's mess in our families. There's lots of mess. But, but here's, I just want to encourage you this morning. If you think your family's messy, let me talk about Herod's family for a minute. Just to make us feel a little bit better. So we see in the text here that Herod marries his brother's wife. His brother is Philip. His brother is in Rome. Philip is a chill dude. Herod's like Papa. Herod is hungry for power. But, but Phil is chill. Amen. I just thought of that right now. Phil is chill. He, he, he's a easygoing guy. But when, when Herod goes up to Rome to, to spend some time with Philip, he gets his eye on Herodias. And Herodias gets her eye on Herod. And they start liking each other. And Herodias, like Herod, is all about power. Now, here's what else you need to know about Herodias. She is not only the wife of his brother, so she is Herod's sister-in-law, but she is also the daughter of his older brother, Aristobulus. Somebody say amen, and then somebody else say, what? Her older brother, much older, Herod, had, Herod the Great had many wives. And one of his older brothers was named Aristobulus, and he was murdered by his father because his father thought he was attempting murder. His father had another one of his brothers murdered as well. His father had one of his wives murdered. Miriamne was murdered as well. He was always wondering where the next one is coming after my throne, and so he would have people murdered. So when you see him sending out the army uh, to Bethlehem and having the young uh, children murdered. That was in the character of his dad. But here is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. He has his eye on his sister-in-law and on his niece, saying, I got to have her for a wife. He is committed to his own flesh. This is bad stuff, y'all. Um, he's committed to gratifying and getting what he wants. Secondly, characteristics of non-disciples, they're listeners but not doers. Listeners but not doers. Verses 19 and 20. And, and, and let me go right here to verse 20. It says, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Look at this, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod loved to listen to John. He had his podcast on his iPhone, amen? The, the Locust and Wild Honey podcast of John the Baptist. And he listened to every episode twice, every week. He was listening to the podcast. He's like, oh, that's so deep. Oh, my goodness. I like that. Say that again, John. Say that again. He liked to listen. 
but he wasn't about to do any of it. He liked to listen, but he wouldn't do. Brothers and sisters, this is something we've all got to be aware of. Amen. We can fool ourselves into believing because I read this, because I heard this, because I listened to this, because I know this, that we are something that we are not. And if this could show on my forehead, it would say guilty, guilty, guilty on my forehead. I've been guilty of that many, many times in my life. Thinking I'm something that I am not because I know something. I've heard something. I've read something. I've listened to the podcast. Listeners but not doers. Paul warns us in Romans 12 verse 3. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. But rather think of yourselves, the Bible says, with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. God says, don't think you're up here. And and, and I just want to say this to everyone in this room. Thank God for the ways that he intervenes in our lives when we are proud, when we think we're something that we're not, that God intervenes and brings us down a little bit lower. Thank God for those times of breaking. That is God's love. That is God's mercy to you and to me to say, you're not there yet, bro. You're not there yet, sister. But that is God's love to us, listeners but not doers. Thirdly, preoccupied with the perception of people. In verses 25 through 27, uh, you know the story here. We just read it that Herod has this great party. And uh, with the party, uh, he has his, actually his great niece <laughs> is the one who dances, right? His niece's and wife's uh, uh, daughter. So this is his great niece who is dancing before them. It pleases Herod. It pleases these men. And he says to her, You can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. This is what he says. Now, where have you heard that before? If you've read your Bible, you you saw that with Queen Esther when she makes a request of the king, right? And, And Queen Esther goes into the presence of the king knowing because she's not been summoned that the king in a moment can have her murdered right there. But Queen Esther goes in to save her people from a plot against the Jewish people. She goes in and she receives the golden scepter of the king. And he says, you can have up to half my kingdom. And her desire, what ends up coming out, if you've read the story of Esther, is the salvation of the people of God. But here with Herod, it's something altogether different. He has been aroused in his lust and he says, you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. And the the scripture tells us that uh, Herodias' daughter goes to mom and mom says, ask him for the head of John the Baptist. And in verse 26, the scripture says, so he immediately sent an executioner, immediately, right away. He didn't want to do it. In verse 26, it says he was greatly distressed. 
He knew that John was a holy man. He knew that John was a righteous man. But the scripture says, because of his oaths. But because of the way he had been a big shot in front of his friends. But because of what it would cost him in the eyes of those who he thought were somebody and something. But because of that, he steps back, he steps away, and he just goes forward with killing this innocent man. Here's what I want us to be aware of. We need to be aware of the but becauses in our own lives. We want to serve God. We want to move forward. We want to do some things that might be difficult, that might not be well understood, that might not be well received. And we stop short, but because... The cost is a little bit too much, but because I can't see myself doing this, what are they going to think? But because we need to be aware of the but becauses in our life and ask God for the courage to move ahead with an audience of one. God is our audience. Jesus is our king. But because. But because. He moves in evil. Look at this next slide real quick. Just this comparison between a non-disciple Herod and a true disciple John. Relationship to the world. The non-disciple is fully committed to self-gratification, their own comfort. The disciple is marked by self-denial. Relationship to the word. Herod's a delighted listener who has no real intention to live it out. John the Baptist is a committed learner and doer of God's word. Relationship to others, Herod is preoccupied with perception and marked by exploitation, using and abusing other people. John the Baptist is marked by care for the well-being of others, even at his own expense. Then finally, this relationship to power Herod's whole life has been about accumulating more power. He's tetrarch, but he wants to be king. As a matter of fact, a few years after this, a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is going to go, Herod's going to go back to Rome and demand that he be named a king uh, from the Romans. And then he loses all of his power and is banished from the kingdom altogether. His life is about the accumulation of power. John, however, is giving away power and pointing others to Jesus. John 3.30 says, he must increase and I must decrease. The joy of his life is his own decrease that Jesus might increase. Listen, for us, as we move forward in building God's church here in Alney, we must be those who willingly give away power for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Pastor Tim and I have both said our jobs are on the line here. Our goal... My goal and Pastor Tim's goal is not to be the the lead pastors and main pastors at New Life Church until we're old and decrepit and can't do it no more. 
That's not our goal. Our goal is in the coming years to replace ourselves with younger people, by God's grace, people of color that can begin and continue the work in this neighborhood and take it places that we cannot take it. We must decrease that God might increase. And we've got to be those who willingly give away power for the glory of our King. We want to reach this community better. Amen. Last piece here, what you need to know, what you need to know. Here's some good news, y'all. Every attempt to destroy disciples will fail. It's going to fail. It can't make it. Now, now here's the truth. Sometimes it looks like it, 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 it succeeds pretty well. Amen. It looks like it took care of the job. Just like ask John the Baptist, right? He lost his head over this thing. Didn't look so good for him. It didn't look good for John the Baptist. Ask the, the, the serpent, the enemy in the Garden of Eden when he twists the word of God and bamboozles Eve and Adam and has them turn away from God and now sin enters the world and death through sin. It looks like that sin has won. It looks like the enemy has won. You go back in uh, the, the book of Kings and you look at uh, the ministry of Elijah as he is on Mount Carmel and he's asking the people to choose which God they will serve. There's, four, there's 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah on that mountain and he calls down the fire of God on his sacrifice and all of those false prophets are destroyed. It looks like a great victory, but you know the story. Within a few hours, he is running from his life from Jezebel, amen? Because she said, if by this time tomorrow you're still alive, I'm not going to have it. And so he runs and he fears for his life and it looks like the enemy is won again. But here's the reality. All of these plots look successful, but ultimately every one of them fails. Every one of them fails. When Elijah goes off of the scene, you know the one who comes behind him is Elisha. And the Bible says that, that God raises up Elisha and Elijah has to put his mantle on him, but he's given a double portion. Amen. He's given a double portion. You got rid of Elijah, but now you got a double portion prophet coming after you. Amen. Herod is able to behead John the Baptist, but what's causing all this stir in him is that Jesus has now come on the scene. Jesus is doing these miracles, and not just Jesus, but right before this, we see in this sandwich technique that Mark uses again, that Jesus has sent out disciples two by two, and they're all over Galilee, and demons are being cast out, people are being healed, the gospel of salvation is being preached. You thought you got rid of someone, but look what came back. Justin Martyr said these words. He was a second century apologist in the church. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century philosopher, Christian philosopher said, the tyrant dies and his rule ends. 
The martyr dies and his rule begins. Listen, here's what we need to understand. Disciples of Jesus Christ are not dedicated to their personal success, but to the advancement of the kingdom of God. No matter what the cost. Disciples are not about my, I need to say it this way, it's not about my brand. It's not about my name. It's not about my church. It's not about my denomination. It's not about my anything. It is about the glory of the king and the advancement of the one true king and his kingdom in the earth. And whatever my place is in that, if it never looks like success to me, that's okay. Because if I give my life to glorify Christ in the end, he will be glorified. Whether I see it, whether I taste it, whether I smell it, whether I, that never comes to me, his name will be glorified through those who have counted the cost of discipleship and walked in the way of Christ. It will come to pass. John the Baptist is murdered by an evil ruler who knows he's doing the wrong thing. You ever heard of someone who dies like that? How about Jesus? He's pointing us to Jesus. When, when John dies, his disciples come and they take the body just like Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The way of discipleship, the cost of discipleship is God bidding us to die to the things of this world and to die to the things of self that our lives become centered on the glory of the one true king. Discipleship always bids us to die. Let me conclude with this. Like John the Baptist, each of you that calls on the name of Jesus Christ is called to a life of service with one objective, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, someone might say, but pastor, don't you know that in the history of redemption, there is no one else like John the Baptist. He serves a unique role in the history of redemption. After 400 years without prophets, he's the prophet who comes on the scene and points everyone to Jesus. Pastor, what do you mean that we are called with a unique call like John the Baptist? I'm glad you asked that question because here's what I mean. John did fill that unique role, but here's what I want you to see. You also have a unique role in the plan of God and in his kingdom advancement. There will never be another person that is you. You're unique. 
Psalm 139 says, Fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by the hand of Almighty God for a specific purpose. Listen, God made you at a particular time, in a particular place. He placed you in a particular family, good, bad, and ugly, whether you like it or not. God placed you in that family in that time. He gave you particular talents, particular abilities, a particular characteristics and personality. God gave you particular strengths and particular weaknesses. He's brought you through particular circumstances that no one else has faced exactly the way that you have. And because of all of this, you have a particular and unique ability to affect the lives of others in ways that no one else before, during, or since your life will ever be able to. You are uniquely designed by God for your part in the kingdom advancement agenda of Jesus Christ. That's for you. And that's for me. So I close with this question. When all is said and when all is done, are you willing to use the unique particularities, your unique particularities, to point others to the powerful and redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ? In just a moment, we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. Jesus paid the ultimate price to make grace, salvation, redemption available for us, for all who will believe. The Bible says that you first, also the Greek, what it means to any person on the earth and through all the history of the earth who will look to him. He's paid the price. And so we're going to take of that bread and that cup in just a moment. I want to ask God that we would have a time of sober reflection on our lives. As we look at the categories I had up there before, what does your life look like? Where are you at in your discipleship? Oh, that God may call us together to to be a people that says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. No but, no because. Yes, Lord. Here I am. Send me. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.